Okay, hello and welcome to uh, the Journal of the History of Ideas uh, podcast. So today we're joined by Stefanos Joulanis, who almost needs no introduction. He is an Associate Professor of History at New York University and Director of the Center for International Research in the Humanities and Social Sciences. As of May 2017, he is the co-executive editor of the Journal of the History of Ideas, our parent journal. So his first book, published by Stanford University Press in 2010, was entitled An Atheism That Is Not Humanist Emerges in French Thought. In that book, he mapped out an alternative genealogy of anti-humanism in France, a notion that Steph links to a new form of atheism that became particularly important after the two world wars. Since then, he's written a number of books, two co-edited with the anthropologist Todd Myers, one on the German psychiatrist and neurologist Kurt Goldstein, and one forthcoming with Chicago this June entitled The Human Body in the Age of Catastrophe, Brittleness, Integration, Science, and the Great War. Both of these books are a methodological intervention, bringing together intellectual history and the history of science, two fields that are often distinguished despite how integral and often mutually constitutive they are. Steph is also the co-editor of two other books, both derived from conferences, The Scaffolding of Sovereignty, Global and Aesthetic Perspectives on the History of a Concept, and a forthcoming collection entitled Power and Time. Thank you for being with us today, Steph. Thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate this. This will be fun. (laughs) I'd like to begin today by asking you about your route to intellectual history more generally. So what attracted you to this kind of history and led you to your particular interest in France? I think that as an undergraduate, I started out not entirely sure that I was going to uh, finish with a history major. And as much work as I did in history, I did in German and French. But whereas I was more interested in German thought at the time, uh, I was much more interested in French history. And I found French history, French intellectual history, to be rather more fun, to be a place where you could do a lot more interesting work than the work you could do in Germany where political circumstances were far more directly determined of what you could argue around. So that was the first, that was a first uh, start. And then I went to Johns Hopkins for my PhD, which was, it turned out heavily interdisciplinary. So a lot of the work was in history of science or in history of psychoanalysis with Ruth Lees. Some work was in art history. And uh, then I did, um, I studied under Hent de Vries, who is a philosopher of religion. And so as I moved to develop a dissertation project, I continued working with Andy Rabenbach from Princeton, who was much more interested in the question of how can you think about not ideas as philosophical ideas, but ideas in, I hate to say ideas in context, because that's not exactly the form, but, you know, it's, it's, as per the human motor, the kind of reality or application that they have from industry to political circumstances, to debates around uh, work. And um, the dissertation did not fulfill that that hope in any way, at least Andy's hope in in any way for that. And it then became uh, an atheism that is not humanist emerges in French thought. And there the idea was that at least I could do some of this between history of science and intellectual history to say that the terms were not terms set up by phenomenology or existentialism, but they were much more set up by epistemologists um, like Gaston Bachelard, who were much more interested in themes that came out of the history of science and medicine. 
And so in a way, just as you said, the, the transparency book is very much invested in this ambiguous little corner between uh, intellectual history and history of science without being in a sense either of the two. I would like, <laughs> that's what I would like at least. Well, I mean, it's a fantastic book. Um, and that's, I mean, that's what we're here to discuss today. I mean, you've given us a kind of general backgrounds of that. What, I mean, what made you hit on that idea of transparency? I mean, hearing you talk, and I really, I mean, I can see how that connects to this sort of um, model of a web that you talk about as, as being your key methodology, um, which I mean, I'm very taken with, and I think works really well. Could you speak some more to that, please? So... Right, so I thought uh, transparency came in partly by accident. I discovered that I'd been writing about it for some time uh, without having paid very much attention to it. And then suddenly the question of how do you write about something that's not really a concept and is not really a, you know, it's not simply a metaphor. It's certainly not an idea and it's not something that's conditioned by each individual thinker as they go through their thought. Instead, it occurred to me that Transparency had to be engaged as a term that had uses, where the uses and the value attached to these uses was known, but where you didn't necessarily know to what extent you could rely on, an, on a particular intellectual to do this, mm -hmm. um, to, to, to do the articulation and the thinking through with you, because they would talk about it in passing. And so we have some people who wrote explicitly about transparency. For example, the people in Claude Lefort's group in the 1970s and uh, Jean Starobinsky when he wrote about Rousseau, transparency and obstruction. <coughs> Sorry, but a lot of the time, transparency was simply a term that people would use in passing. And so I moved into this idea that maybe I could web together not only transparency and the value it seemed to have, which was almost always treated as a negative value, that is to say, in transparency was invariably treated in pejorative terms. But I could try to link intellectuals, their arguments, social circumstances or social problems that seem to invoke questions of transparency and gray areas of state control, for example, and at the same time, other concepts that came very closely attached. So for example, concepts of norms, Concepts of the other, the other being that which in post-war French thought already from Sartre and especially from Levinas and Lacan is not transparent to me. Uh, and suddenly to start thinking of in what way did these different fields come to work together? To some degree, they work together. To some degree, the point of the web was to say that they don't. We can only think about them in terms not of a single concept, but of a web. To, to explain that, um, for our listeners, I, I postulate this uh, this idea that you can think about such terms by linking them to other related terms and other related problems as though they were nodes in, in a web of strings. And thus we act as though we're playing with a cat's cradle, so to speak, as historians, because the little points where the different strings meet are not stable. They're not, you know, they're pulled together, but they're pulled together by other concepts and other themes and problems, not by individuals, not by biographical forms, not by, uh, not necessarily by specific events or specific moments in time. And I think that's a really interesting concept. And, and with that in mind, 
How did you how did you come to select the various individuals that you you've chosen to say? So you've got a cast of you know psycho- psychologists, um, philosophers, etc. Not so many historians, right? Um, but a, a really quite a diverse variety of people. How did you how did you come to them? I think some of them were people that I was writing about to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, that is to say, some were people who were following up on the tradition of anti-humanism that I tried to sketch out in the first book. And there, with those, it seemed only too obvious. That is to say, people like Foucault and Derrida, whom I wanted to write about, were talking about this to begin with. Someone like Sartre talked about it at moments and then left it aside. But then the point was, it it was a nice surprise to discover that historians of science did so as well. And they did so very carefully and they did so you know, not simply in passing, but with considerable force uh, involved in the subject. But then in comes the moment of saying, how exactly am I going to give a bigger story than a story that would conserve, concern five or six individuals? Because again, they don't control the term and the, and the uses of it. And there it became more interesting. On the one hand, it is a bit utilitarian, and the book does, does, does do that. That is to say, historians don't carry this uh, tradition or this theme nearly as clearly. Others, like Pierre Bourdieu, also don't carry it nearly as explicitly, or I didn't see them sticking into the argument nearly as, as much as I would have wanted to. But for some others, like psychologists, for example, or anthropologists, this suddenly did seem to be a major concern. That if we wanted to tell a story of what, quote-unquote, the other is, then that story certainly has to go through anthropologists and through their peculiar relation both to French politics and to French empire, but also to the epistemologists and the philosophers that I was just mentioning. So that the effect was one where I couldn't simply get rid of the figures that seemed far more pressing and that seemed far more closely connected and where even in their methods, for example, like the anthropologists, even in their method, this would become uh, a key priority. The, the negotiating forms of the transparency of the other to them or of their relationship back to uh, their own home. So, for example, uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss has all this long discussion of where he presents himself and casts himself as being quite alone, out of sync with both Paris and the world of the people that he studies, similarly out of sync with New York. And that position of being somehow in a kind of strange suspended animation seemed to replay the very ideas that I was trying to talk about in other parts of the book. So that's how they they tended to fit in. Now, the result was that there are some glaring omissions in the book. Glaring because I didn't think that I could tell the story, for example, of the Annal School in this. I could say a few things about Lucien Febvre, but, you know, he sort of fell by the wayside for, for that. And similarly, I didn't think that Bourdieu, the transparency was as key a theme in some of his significant moments. Uh, I also did not want to give the impression just to say this as well, that transparency would really, you know, be such a key concept that it could explain more than some of the movements, intellectual, political, and other, that would come in the French post-war period. Nor was it some sort of, you know, passepartout that could allow you to engage with everybody. So that's another set of limitations that I'd have to negotiate. I'm sure we can talk about more of those. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that you set up very clearly in the book. You're very careful to sort of point out the different nuances of the of the stage that you're trying to, or that you do very well populate. 
Um, but one thing that you do make clear is that you know you think there's a there's a specificity of France and and not mm. just France but France in this in this particular post-war e- epoch as um, as as generating a particular version or a particular spectrum of meanings and uses of the word transparency. Um, your your second chapter is entitled France Year Zero, um, which you know very clearly sets up a kind of uh, periodization. Um, and you also say I'm, I'm going to quote here that it is important for this conceptual history to to emphasise how the aftermath of World War II down to the 1970s created a structurally different intellectual regime, so that the French case stands apart. Because of course, transparency is a concept that appears across multiple uh, linguistic contexts and sort of temporal spans. So, I mean, can you tell us a little bit more about why you think that there's a very particular usage of that that concept in the French case in this moment? Mm-hmm. So, one one side of this, let's say, the general postulate of the of the project is that the French were critical toward transparency in a very emphatic form. That is to say, the transparency appeared in passing when uh, it was going to be treated as a problem. That is to say, to say of somebody that they're transparent uh, was became a, a negative. That Now, obviously, you can say that in English as well, and you could say it in German or other languages, but the straightforwardness with which you could say that a person is transparent, not that they're too transparent, uh, became an issue. So whereas in the US, for example, a certain kind of openness was a priority, a certain argument about sincerity was a priority, here, the term transparent seemed to carry connotations that you would really not want to have associated. So this is at the you know, interpersonal level, that the other ought to be really other. Um, you could do the same thing at the epistemological level to say that both positivism in a more traditional sense or intellectualism had failed and we needed to look at the world as carrying... Uh, fundamental obstacles or resistances or textures that deny our understanding. Similarly, at the political level, to say, to speak of a transparent society rather than an open government. And from my perspective, that was really interesting. In Germany, for example, you would look at transparency and open government as pluses in the post-Nazi period. Even during the Nazi period, Hitler had said various things like to be German is to be clear and so on. And so those it's not as though we need to give individual utterances great force in this sense, but it did seem a very different direction. The second reason for this is that if you told a general story of transparency that would go back to, I don't know, Augustine, for example, and you started from there and you went forward, then you would make a massive story in which at particular moments transparency appears to be a significant value with whatever kind of positive or negative form it has. Uh, Manfred Schneider has this starting with uh, the the Greek uh, demigod Momus, for example, and tells this story as a story of progression that reaches to today's exposure society. But that did not seem to me to be the right way to look at the French post-war moment. Instead, you could say that there are a couple of breaks in France, one around 1930, the second one with 1945, the explosion of existentialism, the post-war, let's say, very imbalanced consensus and and so on, where suddenly moments in the past that concerned transparency would be cited. And so you get a new regime of citation of the history that precedes it. So that Descartes' cogito, for example, 
will be discussed by his by philosophers especially as a great problem why is the cogito supposed to be transparent then rousseau's attempt to make himself transparent what he says my my soul transparent is crystal my heart transparent is crystal those moments will be cited and played with the point being to come up to a different uh, angle of the of, of the problem so suddenly it wasn't about telling a linear story moving forward but about being able to tell a story where the French and non-French past could be recoded after 1945 in a highly specific way with very specific kinds of values being associated to that, uh, that, that term transparency. And, and not just the term, but the figures, the, the world of images that would be associated with it. That seemed to be quite specific. So you could say, for example, just to complete this thought, that in Britain and in Italy, you have moments of doubt toward transparency. Um, you have a celebration of the British civil service, for example, or in Italy, you have a similar agonistic, if not even more agonistic situation after 1968, where transparency is, as both a slogan and a, a political practice is very much in doubt, to put it mildly. But you don't have a kind of tradition that's being renegotiated around its terms. And that was something that was rather new, I think, or quite specific in that one. It's not to say that you can't do this transnationally. It's to say that I was all the more heartened by the fact that I couldn't. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm really glad that you brought up that concept of the image as well, um, because, I mean, there's a very kind of immediate visual register to the notion of transparency. I mean, you kind of think about, in terms of the like, history of science, you kind of think about the development of X-rays and that kind of that kind of perception. But that's not necessarily the way that, I mean, it's been thought out by the thinkers that you're looking at. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's very much not, in many cases, that optical sort of right. question. That's right. Um, so I, I was, to begin with, I was a bit suspicious of the optical question because we, of course, have a masterpiece of French intellectual history and Martin Jay's downcast eyes that I wasn't exactly going to, to try and replicate in this. But the other part of this was that parallel to this project, I was working with Todd Myers on the project that he mentioned at the beginning on the human body and the age of catastrophe, and that involved thinkers who worked at great length with x-rays. Uh, physiologists in that case. And what I was sensing much more was the dearth of discussions around images like x-rays and their capacity to see where you couldn't have seen before, meaning in the French case, not in the physiologists, uh, the European physiologists case. So I started noticing to what extent you didn't really get images or uh, optical questions being played out in this kind of discussion. And thus, to give a couple of different references, for example, um, you know, the, op the optical unconscious idea, which has been moved back from Rosalind Krauss's to French thought and from Kisteva back uh, into earlier thinkers, is a much more post-1970 moment of trying to engage that same argument in optical terms. But, it wasn't something that seemed that necessary. Instead, if we look at Sartre, for example, or if we look at uh, Bachelard or, or Canguilhem, they will talk about transparency as a matter of epistemological purpose, but not as a matter of optical purpose. So in a way, one of the things that I had to do early on in the book, I think in the chapter that you're referring to, is talk about the way that the optical connotations of, 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 of transparency were from the start or could be read as having been from the start, mm 
epistemological ones. And so the examples of figures like Plato or Aristotle or Newton, when they were cited, would be cited not for the not to the advantage of an optical understanding. And this reflects quite nicely Martin Jay's argument. I also didn't think that vision was a category nearly as significant for the deployment of the term. Let's put it like this. So in the web, the optical dimension of, of transparency would be a related node. But this was not usually the node that was being brought up. It was almost surprisingly ignored. Uh, and so vision plays a very, very tiny role in the book, much to my own surprise in this, because you could say that certain things about cinematic vision, for example, would be significant. And again, those weren't the terms to, to go with. Okay, that's interesting. And again, I, I really like that idea of the web to explain that. There's different nodes. I think that works really well. Um, so to, to push further on that that question of like the epistemological ramifications of thinking through transparency, mm-hmm. um, how, do you, how do you think critiques of or ways of approaching transparency in this moment, because it's very critical, um, to what extent do you think that impacted on the development of like scientific rationality in this time? And to what extent is the pursuit of transparent scientific knowledge a possibility when you're thinking about this, these philosophic sensibilities and this kind of aversion to the concept of transparency? So you could say there are there are multiple. So I don't know about scientific rationality directly. That's one thing that I should uh, I should be careful about. Mm-hmm. There are, for example, points of doubt about transparency and positivism. In some of the great, in some of the great post-war works uh, of, of French science, for example, um, François Jacob's *The Logic of Life* or, or Jacques Monod's uh, *The Possible and the Actual*, which had so much to do, uh, or at least who were thinkers who had so much to do with an international image of French science, there are doubts around that. But as I try to make clear later on in the book, someone like Jacob was very happy to conceive of himself as a, as a kind of new Hegelian of sorts, to, to construct the entire story of life and our position around that in terms of our ability to, let's say, replay the phenomenology of spirit at the level of biological discovery and biological truth. That is a key part of the logic of life and the way that he positions himself. But at the same time, texts like that were responding to the concerns of people like Angulam. They were very much, I mean, it's it's, it's patently clear that um, Jacob, for example, has read Foucault's The Order of Things and is trying to negotiate that. Um, so there again, the idea that you can't simply go straight at truth would become a key part. That's to say about scientific rationalities of that variety, um, of a biologist and a biologist telling a story. But on the other hand, you could have a very different kind of scientific rationality, which had to do, for example, with psychology, which had to do, for example, with anthropology. So in psychology and in psychoanalysis, you get a very emphatic uh, engagement with transparency. Psychologists try, for example, to clear up or to give new rules for the way that you would understand childhood and adolescence, traditionally one of the darkest spaces of uh, psychological inquiry and how do you control adolescents who seem to not be adjusted to society the terms that you would like, especially meaning you are the, 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 psycho- the psychologist who works for the state. And because this plays into education, they go into overdrive constructing a whole language of the so-called 
ill-adapted adolescence or maladapted in what would be the English term of the period. But at the same time, you can go back to someone like Lacan, who is very emphatically opposed to what he sees as an ego psychology that destroys the unconscious, that marginalizes and then destroys the significance of the unconscious in setting up uh, individual sexual social life. So there, suddenly, it's as though different angles of, let's not say a science, insofar as psychology and psychoanalysis are not quite the same thing, but of a scientific complex, different corners of that scientific complex are again negotiating the key problems that that are coming up here. And that was, from my perspective, a serious uh, and fun kind of scientific rationality to play with. Later on in the 70s, of course, we have the self-organization theory in physics, and there are figures like Henri Atlan, who wrote um, A Tort et a Raison, the, the Enlightenment to Enlightenment, and also wrote um, works on biological organization and information theory at the time, was very much concerned with this idea of how do you move between enlightenment and myth? And how is it that enlightenment has this capacity to become, you know, kind of new agey enlightenment in that you go from a critical standpoint to one of self-celebration and, and new mythologization? The sounds, I'm making it sound more Adorno or Horkheimer even. Uh, it is intended to be at the time, but that was very much the same kind of concern. Those terms were being played out and discussed in terms of what results you can get, how you think about noise, how you think about difference and so on and so forth. So. Yeah, sorry, that was a really long answer. No, no, it's fascinating. And I mean, of course, there's another area of sort of scientific inquiry, depending on how you want to frame that, that you pay a lot of attention to in the book, and that's anthropology. Yes. Right? Um, which I am particularly fascinated by. Um, and I mean, you know, the post-war moment saw the emergence of a lot of new avenues of thought in French anthropology. There's a kind of new humanism connected to the projects of UNESCO, the United Nations, to anti-colonial movements and so on. And these are like, you know, race becomes a, a big figure yes. in this. Um, now, in part, you connect this to the specificity of the moment. So like many key figures in, in anthropology and in French anthropology spent the war years in the United States. And this, of course, brought them into contact with the kind of Franz Boas school of thought. Um, yes. And, you know, I'm thinking here of the approaches of thinkers such as, as Ruth Benedict, Margaret Mead, uh, E. Franklin Frazier, and how their thinking impacted French thinkers such as Michel Lewis, um, for example. Could you make some comment on this shift? Yes. So the, the first, there was a first angle that I had very much in mind, and this has to do in part with what thinkers have been privileged in um, the study of French anthropology in the last 15, 20 years. One has to do with the figure of, you know, let's say the overprivileging of someone like Soustelle, for example, from my perspective, who was became significant by way of his place in French empire rather than his, you know, contributions to French anthropology in any sense, and yet becomes a key figure of anthropology. I don't want to overstate this, this point. What I wanted to describe instead is that there is a kind of key set of shifts that happens from the period when the key figures of French anthropology are Marcel Moss, let's say a French ethnology to follow Camille, uh, Camille Ropsis's uh, uh, division between the physical anthropologists and uh, ethnographers. There's a key difference between that moment where someone like Marcel Moss is aiming at the total man and is trying to construct an idea that you could tell a story whereby 
rituals, concerns, affective reactions, symbolic constructions, and so on, could all be molded back into a single, um, could all be molded back into a single argument. And the moment where for Claude Lévi-Strauss, for example, by contrast, you look at the anthropologist as displaced, you look at him as somebody who stands above only because he stands in ill relations to both the subjects of his study and back home. Lévi-Strauss does both perfect the system of the total man and doubt it at great uh, length. That is to say, there you cannot say something totalizing about the empirical circumstances, but only about the structural premises um, of these empirical circumstances. So that was one element that I wanted to figure out. Why is it that Lévi-Strauss does have these moments when he's criticizing the homogenization of the world uh, according to Western standards, you know, that sort of famous passage about um, aircraft carriers, the Polynesian islands as aircraft carriers solidly anchored in the southern seas, he says, and the earlier image of someone like Moss. Moss is a privileged student, despite the fact that we happily see him as a you know, great figure of French socialism, is Marcel Griol, also the great antagonist of, of Lévis. And Griol is also famously overbearing and colonial in his ethnographic pursuits. And so there, that needed to be described in part because, again, Lévi-Strauss will use certain elements of this attempt to get the, the, the interviewee to give up their secrets. Uh, so that's in, in Tristropique, for example, Lévi-Strauss tries to get the secret, gets the secret names uh, from the children of the Nambiquara group that he's with which is something that is very much insisted upon by, by Moss and Griol, much more so by Griol. But again, the overall direction of this, the heavily anti-colonial angle of someone like Lévi-Strauss in the early 50s needed to be accentuated. And that, I think, is entirely due to what you said before, this moment when Lévi-Strauss and others are in New York, not simply Lévi-Strauss, but also the Marcel Moss-trained uh, Alfred Metro and uh, Michel Laris, who's never in New York, but that's, or so far as I know, uh, but plays a different role. Laris is key here because in part of Phantom Africa, which uh, Brent Hayes Edwards has translated and brought out only very recently, but he's also very key because he's such an interesting figure in reading this mixture of ethnographic endeavor, frequently an ethnographic endeavor, prioritizing masks and, and focusing on this you know, on, on theatrical or spectacular circumstances. And at the same time, the sort of endless attempt to account for himself in the autobiographical texts. Already in L'Age de l'Homme, L'Age d'Homme, uh, man, translated as manhood, but also later in the long um, autobiographical texts of the post-war period that mix poetry with with this kind of writing. So I very much wanted to be able to talk about that. Also about his um, also about his contribution to UNESCO debates, mm -hmm. which the most fun part of which was that he carries out this creative quote unquote montage of works, especially by Ruth Benedict and Margaret Mead and Ashley Montague and others, in constructing a tract in support of the anti-racism campaign of UNESCO. Uh, montage here being taken very, very um, Playfully, let's say. 
uh, as, as a quote-unquote literary practice in this case. Anyway. No, I mean, I think that's that's fantastic. And I, mean, I think something else, I mean, something else you mentioned in, in regards to Lyris is his his friendship with Aimé Césaire, yes. for example. And I think that kind of, I think that's really crucial, particularly sort of in regard to UNESCO. Because beyond that, key thinkers like Lyris and, and Claude Lévi-Strauss, um, they were implicated in sort of anti-colonial networks and efforts to construct or think through decolonized epistemologies. And I'm thinking here of their involvement in, say, for example, the Committee de Patronage uh, of um, Alion, so the Senegalese thinkers, Alion Diop um, Intellectual Project, the journal and publishing house Présence Africaine, which, of course, goes on to become a consulting um, non-governmental organization for UNESCO um, on the basis of Alion Diop's sort of belief that efforts like Lyris's um, to construct a kind of cultural, socio-historical cultural understanding of race could have a very sort of real impact on the ground. Um, and I, I would also make the argument that much of what Lyris writes in the 50s, his conception of the need for ethnology to cease being unilateral or European mm-hmm. in order to contribute to a true humanism, for example, resonates strongly with the thinking of, of people like Césaire and uh, Leopold Sédar Senghor. Um, and of course, this is a connection that reaches back to that pre-World War II moment as yes. well. Um, and as you mentioned, you sort of you foreground um, your chapter on anthropology in UNESCO with a discussion of uh, Marcel Mauss's uh, ambition to capture a sense of a total man and um, point to the ways that in the 1930s, French ethnologists increasingly deemed race a weak category. Um, and a lot of these intellectual movements, again, sort of overlap and run parallel with those conceived by black thinkers in the dawning negritude movement. Um, one of the so-called uh, trois pères uh, of Negritude, Léon Gontrain de Mars is a student at the Institut d'Ethnologie, uh, and in 1935, Senghor's writing in L'Etudiant Noir that the project of universal humanism required the elaboration of a distinct culture, sort of to be negre is to recover what is human beneath the rust of what is artificial. And I suspect that um, this, these ideas can be productively engaged with your argument about transparency and as a sort of addendum to that in, in reference to Lyris's um, Phantom Africa, there's this story where um, Gontran de Mas, whilst he's a student at the Institute uh, d'Ethnologie, Institute sort of comes into contact with, um, I think his name is Marcel Moret, who's, who's mm-hmm. writing in, uh, I think it's, who arranges to get some of uh, de Mas's poems published, right? But he he contextualizes the publication of these poems, which go on to be, you know, republished and, and anthologized and become very famous sort of celebration of negritude in this 1930s moment. He contextualizes it in terms of just having read Lyris's Phantom Africa and then oh. having gone to watch, yeah, well, exactly. He then goes, it's this sort of fantastic and kind of horrifying story where he then goes to watch this film on voodoo with friends mm-hmm. and sort of talks about how out of the shadows looms Damas, who's noticed him and wants to have a chat. So he contextualizes this whole thing in terms of, you know, phantom Africa, voodoo, and then, you know, all of a sudden there's this sort of African who appears to offer me this product of his sort yes. of intellectual labor. I mean, that's interesting too, because he goes out of his way to sort of make it clear that Damas only realizes his blackness by coming into contact with a French ethnographic view of what it means yes. to be black. Yes. Um, so I wonder, yeah, could you comment on that? This is, this is going to be difficult to say in, in a single, to make a single argument from, from here. Yeah. Um, I think this is totally fascinating. And a lot of this, you know, what I was trying to say earlier, some of the things that are difficult for me to, were difficult for me to discuss were how broadly to make 
how broad to make this project. Let's say the broader it became, the thinner it became. And so after a point, I restrained myself from having much longer discussions or trying to have much longer discussions of how these terms would play elsewhere. There's a different side of this, of course, which is that, let's say, on the one hand, we can use Leris as someone who gave quarter to um, anti-racist ideas and then came to embrace them, largely thanks to César. And when he gives the 1949 talk on the ethnographer faced with colonialism, that is an amazing talk. It's, it's, it's super significant in this, in this context. But he also, you know, it's very difficult to, to see that as the only side of this story. And I should not wish to suggest that that was, uh, that that was the case. That is to say, he also gives, you know, he also allows thinkers who are far more comfortable with race, for example, to find in him the kind of critic that suggests that they're moving ahead. That is to say that things are improving. So in the French context, I want to I want to sort of accentuate that a little because this book doesn't quite handle agonistic circumstances very strongly. And hence the anti-colonial movement is not something that I think could be properly engaged under the banner of transparency as a key subject. It's much more about a certain, let's say, that would need a slightly different web or a different angle in this web to to play with. Whereas from my perspective or from my set of questions here, someone, those engaged in rethinking and doubting transparency are doubting a certain vision of progress, a certain vision of advance and improvement, and a certain kind of humanism that they sometimes ascribe to and sometimes will abandon altogether. So to go back to your question here, I think that this could be very productively brought up uh, and discussed. There are key moments where forms of transparency are being engaged, where the question of what it means to be either French or non-French, uh, the question of what it means to be Black or not, are being engaged in these very terms. The most famous would be uh, Franz Fanon's title, Black Skin, White Masks. The other occasions would be Edouard Glissant's 80s um, discussions of a right to opacity. That kind of problem and that kind of priority, by contrast, would be one where I would not necessarily want to say that these French, this French set of thinkers and set of conceptual problems are determinant of the understanding of transparency as it comes from uh, decolonial and anti-colonial thinkers. There, I would want to be very cautious before suggesting that, because then something like Phantom Africa can come to appear much more um, central to a story where it should not necessarily be. You know, the, the sort of famous discussion with the Kono, for example, that Leris and Griol and the others steal uh, during the Dakar Djibouti uh, uh, um, trip that becomes, that is something that on the one hand you could present as, you know, there, when he writes about it, he begins in terms of shame and guilt about what's happened. But by and large, that's not the kind of shame and guilt that he is concerned with. Uh, only gradually does the anti-colonial narrative come to be installed, and especially after 45. So that's, the, that's where it can no longer be separated from the opposition to anti-Semitism that someone like Leris 
uh, and others have prioritized. Yeah, that was a, again kind of imbalanced form. But I wanted to, to point out that on the one hand, I would not that here I would want to be cautious that a conceptual history of this variety should be careful not to, you know, export a kind of French set of problems onto to specifically anti-colonial framework, while at the same time saying that yes, these are the kinds, these are precisely the thinkers that, um, you know, Fanon Domas and, and others ended up engaging with to some or other degree. With with Glissant, I'm not even as sure that that's as a priority. I think that that's about part of his presence in the French canon, uh, which is of course very ambiguous, uh, or rather people have all too happily brought him in when his critical dimension toward it can also be seen from other perspectives as well. Yeah. So well, thank you for that. And I should also be clear that, you know, you do very much set up your argument at the beginning to make it very obvious that you're not trying to cover that entire post-war waterfront. You're kind about that. I mean, my, my sense of this is that it's a point where I wish I'd had a smarter way of going about this. It was not something where I could see... It was not a point at, it's not a point with which I'm altogether satisfied about the book. And it's not a point where I could see a way out of these sets of uh, problems or out of the ambiguity. You know, how much am I overextending the moment that I talk about this? How much should I be talking about the establishment of, you know, the banlieue in the 70s, for example, as a space of uh, that concerns transparency? How should I be talking, as uh, Todd Shepard reminded us a couple of weeks ago, in terms of questions of, let's say, gender and prostitution from a post-colonial perspective, which he does so well uh, in his own recent book. Those kinds of questions, I was not entirely sure of how to proceed, and I kind of played it safe, and I'm not mm -hmm. altogether retroactively as satisfied about that. I mean, I think that's, I mean, that's a really interesting observation. I think it's it's difficult. I mean, I think the way that you set up that idea of the, the nodes in the web and particularly in regard to transparency, which as you as you point out many times, that is is something that is not necessarily always explicit, right? It's one mm. of those implicit things and it's sort of you're kind of limited in the way that it, it comes up. And I think I think the way that you you set those parameters are actually there's no point in the book where you feel like you're stretching that idea or that concept of transparency too thin. And I think mm. that would be something, as you say, that you kind of run into problems with if you take it further. Yes. I mean, I, the other side, the other way to put it is that I think one could write a very different history of post-war France by picking a different term. Mm. And in, in one respect, that kind of relativity is what I wanted to allow for it. And, or that's the kind of generative um, idea behind this project. Could there be other accounts and how would they work and what would they prioritize and how would similar engagements with webs um, play themselves out? At the same time, you know, also, as you can see in your own work, there, there are these peculiar ways in which we can discuss points of similarity and then have to confront the question of what exactly the methodological premises are going to be for us to play with and in order to prioritize this for a second. So in, 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 insofar as in your own work on African-American uh, intellectuals and anti-colonial French-speaking uh, intellectuals, there the question of how we're going to set up both their proximity across the distance of languages 
and their differences in terms of what they, or, you know, let's say the moments when they kind of eat up each other's uh, spaces or present themselves as, as, as similar, present their struggles as similar, those questions have for so long been ignored because it is easier to say very specifically, I'm going to handle, you know, the American case or the French colonial case. I'm going to handle an African diaspora as a priority. And so what you're trying to do in bringing these together seems to me to belong in very much the same kind of spirit. How do we renegotiate the terms and the concepts thanks to which we can manage these kinds of relations? I hope that this is an adequate uh, replay here. Um, at least, you know, let's say heuristically an adequate replay for a minute. Um, in my case, I thought that if I stuck to one language, mm -hmm. then I could try and see where the terms would be. And so having tried this out, I still think that its terms can be played out also across linguistic fields, that a particular agonistic circumstance, for example, would give rise to similarities across traditional linguistic divisions or across traditional disciplinary cultural divisions and so on. But I'm not going to pretend that this is going to be something where this project would necessarily complete the, 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 the methodological priorities. I don't think that I know how to, to, to manage that altogether. That's why I'm finding this. And you know, there's a lot of work that does manage to do this quite recently that's very fun and interesting where these epistemological questions become questions of genuine priority. Um, Han Sasi's The Ethnography of Rhythm, uh, Nasser Zakaria's A Final Story, um, you know, I could I could probably proceed through the work uh, of several people, my colleague Manu Natasha Wigley at Princeton, uh, and many others. We would we would move into a set of questions of what are the premises that have not been studied because concepts have been done have been studied in fairly specific manners and their implications under particular circumstances have been studied as consequences of social or cultural history. There, I'm not sure that that is, is holding up anymore. And I thought that your work was going in that, in that direction as well, or at least elements from your work were going in that direction as well. How do we have this epistemological basis to play with from, from here on? I know I'm thinking of all my colleagues and, uh, <laughs> and friends who are also doing work like this, whom I didn't cite a priori and <laughs> feeling apologetic <laughs> around that to begin with, so yes. Yeah, well, I mean, thank you. I think it's a really interesting question. As you say, it's something that I definitely struggle with. And I, I again, that's and I keep on coming back to this, but I think that's why I found your idea of a web so appealing. So in my in my own work, I went the the concept that I was kind of working with um, through Adorno and the likes of that was a, the idea of a, a constellation, right, yes. in which you can bring different different actors and different ideas into um, into the same constellation. Um, to, to understand what bringing the ideas together. And this this is like a kind of, it crosses na national borders, linguistic borders, but also temporal borders, right? You know, you have um, a lot of the intellectuals that I engage with are very interested in in thinkers that, you know, are existing in, in, in previous centuries, which is not a priori a new thing, yes. but in terms of, of thinking very carefully and critically about how we as historians treat that. And how that fits in with well either your idea of a web or with that kind of constellation idea like what can we what can we learn from thinking about those contexts in in that way as opposed to um, what you were mentioning earlier in terms of like as a cause and effect kind of straightforward because I don't think and I think this is something that's very clear in your use of and your treatment of the the term transparency 
you know, the uses and meanings are so myriad and they appear in so many different ways and often in, in sort of unconscious and uncritical mm, ways, yes. right? So there's something interesting in, in theorizing it. I love the idea of a constellation um, and it, it gives you a very interesting... See, so I tend to think that the constellation gives you also the critique of the concept that comes in Adorno. And so I'm very much in admiration of that uh, approach that would come out of the negative dialectics uh, of, of his own work. I love the metaphor of the constellation as well. I think that I thought I wanted, let's say, I wanted the strings more, let's say the mm -hmm. systems of relations more to be the core of what comes in. Um, because this was an attempt at doing something like a history of values in, in mm -hmm. its own form. I'm not implying that, th that this is any better. Um, it's just to say that from my angle, it was things like, okay, so, so Conguilhem talks about the normal and the pathological, and so does Le Roi Bourron, and so does Lacan. In what way, if we take that relation between, let's say, a node called normal and a node called pathological, mm -hmm would we see the inversion taking place roughly in the early post-war period by comparison to what had come before in Durkheim and Halbachs and the intellectualists and so on of the 1920s and 30s. That, I think, is a situation where you can one can play on the little elements, so to speak, of what would lie within a constellation. But a constellation, of course, is also meant to you know, link together the stars in only very specific ways. Yeah. And I'm assuming that I'm thinking right now of, um, well, I guess a very northern uh, case, <laughs> the sort of great bears we think of it, um, whereby there's a one-to-one, -one, in some cases, relation, and in others, there's no connection between the stars, mm -hmm. where I sort of wanted to have these imaginary senses in which I can pull connections between them. That's the fantasy. In practice, I don't think that the, the two things are very, very different at all. I think that constellation puts together both an image of the whole and an image of each little bit and part, and that it doesn't necessarily attach together um, one star to the other. We can also laugh a little bit that there's a, a depth to the constellation. That is to say that, you know, some stars are far further away from us and that yet we act as though they belong in that same plane. Uh, whereas in the description that I tried to offer that I, I sort of flat and badly what this web would like as though it were essentially a two-dimensional uh, form. So that I'm, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying. I don't think that the terms are very, very different uh, in this one, in, in this sense. But I do think that they're also essential. So maybe I should say something a little bit about that. Traditionally, we, we, we've seen versions of conceptual history that very often prioritize great concepts. And thus, for example, in Kosalik's Geschichtliche Grundbegriffe, we have the key concepts like state, sovereignty, modernity. I'm not sure that modernity is one of them there, but you get the idea. Mm -hmm. But what happens exactly, as you said before, when things are unconscious? Why do we need to engage with terms necessarily that are going to be super visible, super present, in some respect or sometimes rather overbearing concepts that seem to be also more static? Would we be able to do this kind of work directly? Well, the recent work by Barbara Cassin and then Emily Apter, Jacques Lazare, Michael Wood in the Dictionary of Untranslatables makes clear that this is a very difficult process to retain in the, you know, fundamentally what, what looks now like essentialist terms of the, or relatively essentialist terms, let's not be altogether unfair, of the Caselic uh, and, and 
of Casalix and others' projects. But how do we now manage to bring things forward and to prioritize them? In what way do we say ideas are not up in the stars, but in the clouds, let's say, but they are the clothes that we wear when we speak? Um, how do we manage those things? There, that space for unconscious moments is both super exciting and can have a relation to social and cultural and history and other forms of, of history, institutional, political, or uh, history of science, insofar as these concepts that are spoken in passing, that um, are as... Um, that they are, as Deleuze says, on the surface, and that they're not uh, the highest cause, but a superficial effect, so to speak. I really like that, that quote. Mm -hmm. These ideas can be studied and historicized differently because they will no longer operate as though they are the ultimate subject that is going to be examined. Instead, they're simply, you know, as as as, as before, they're en passant, they're, they're somehow... Um, there and then they're not and you have to figure out in what ways they appear how far they reach and how much fun you can basically have with them in studying their appearances not simply in high philosophy but also in you know it would be fun for somebody to do it with terms that we've used at this point in this conversation in passing things we know uh whose meaning we know or we think we know and whose value we have asserted very easily mm -hmm. Again, a really long answer. Sorry about that. But yeah. to play. No, absolutely. And I think too. I mean, the again, the concept of the web has appeal in that regard because, and I think you mentioned this in the book as well when you talk about like you know the stickiness of the fibers, right? Yes. There's a kind of sense that ideas can adhere to that in a kind of implicit or unconscious way that I really like, and which I think it, you know plays out very cleverly um, in in your work. In the in this project that I have with Todd Myers, I can give a different example about this, which is that we know well that certain concepts have quasi-medical origins, like the crisis concept, now using Caselic in a positive fashion, uh, because he discusses this in some length in, in, in that article. Um, but part of what we tried to show in that project is how ideas of hormonal regulation and homeostatic integration of the body came out first of scientific and laboratory problems, second, more importantly, particular types of wounds in World War I, where the wound has a physicality that the transparency concept does not have, right? Like the body is something, the argument, if the argument is that the body can be profoundly changed by a kind of injury or a pricking, let's say, then if it can collapse because of that, how are, how are physiologists understand it? So they played with this idea that it's both integrated and brittle. Now I'm saying all this as a long parenthesis in order to go back and say, we see this kind of stickiness that you refer to when concepts of crisis and collapse reemerge after World War I, um, not that they haven't been there at the very beginning of World War One, but when they reemerge first with the League of Nations and then with questions of uh, economic organization and integration in the 1920s. And part of that project late on has very much to do with metaphors of integration and crisis, mm -hmm. as these are played out in fundamentally different fields, from political economy to, uh, to an understanding of law and progress and transformation 
in the, the, the interwar moment to sociology and cybernetics where um, Norbert Wiener famously later says the enemy's disorganization. Uh, moments like this where suddenly you wouldn't say that the cause is medical, but you could say that certain analogies have been made out of a medical field, not least that of an individual body that once threatened either collapses or stands up. And that metaphor could then be not simply transplanted, but fed strongly in, um, in other domains that don't belong to it. I'm using this as an example to say, again, that we could look at very, very different places in order to play that. And that, I think, is the benefit for the kind of history that we can do. Uh, that is to say that here, words are no longer things that are predetermined or things that need to be explicitly negotiated, but they are, um, they are forms whose translations back and forth between fields give us a lot of space and a lot of a lot of space and, and room for play and consideration. When is it that we're doing this kind of account in a thick, careful, uh, descriptive sense that gives us enough room to work? What would be a counter-account? I would love for a counter-account to the transparency project uh, to be there that would not that would say, well, okay, so here are the limits of this project, and here are all the other ways in which we can see it, and these are the other concepts that could be seen as much more master concepts, again, in a similar kind of form. Um, but that's the, that, I think, is a, is a space for possibility in conceptual history that we haven't necessarily had, um, you know, or at least I'd like to flatter myself that we haven't necessarily had it. I think that's a more appropriate way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. And I think, I mean, to return to, to that idea that you bring up in terms of like the, the war wounds kind of thing, that kind of physicality of what's going on. Mm. I think that's something that also appears um, well, quite evidently in, in your transparency book when you talk about that idea of the face, right, and facial yes. reconstruction. And that, I mean, I think that the way that you explore that in context with like, you know, masking and facial restoration is fascinating. Um, I mean, it's something that is kind of very interesting as well because you talk about it as a preoccupation, like a kind of French national preoccupation. <laughs> yes, it no longer is. Kind of, no. I'm kind of pushing things there. Am I not? Yeah. Um, well, um, I absolutely love that, that, that chapter on the masks. It's, mm. It was one of my favorites to write. Uh, and I fully appreciate that it's not exactly a French preoccupation. I think that there were particular moments in that. I had black skin, white masks in mind. And I also had that moment when Beauvoir speaks of wanting to tear her face off, um, that that she can't that she can't tolerate having to perform all the time for everybody around her. That's very um, evocative. Yes, I thought. I, and and then I think when I started writing this, there was the uh, there was the the the, the woman uh, there was a woman in the news who had been whose face had been mauled by her dog, and she was the first facial transplant patient. I think she died last year now, but she, um, it became a case where um, I think Bertrand de Rochelle uh, and other, a team of other doctors, uh, Bernard de Rochelle and a team of other doctors worked to fabricate this possibility of how do you, you know, shift from what, how do you pick up a face and, and place it on someone else? Mm -hmm. uh, and that. what are the ethical implications? François de la Porte wrote very elo eloquently about, you know, the, both the difficulties of those ethical implications and the promise away from a bioethical way of looking in a, in a highly utilitarian fashion at what, uh, what is meant there. 
But here's where the fun part came in. There was a long French tradition around that. It's not necessarily French, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, from the man with the iron uh, mask through that one of my favorite post-war French films, um, The Eyes Without a Face, uh, this was suddenly in which, again, uh, I mean, that's a, a spectacular case in, of a film in which the, the, the female protagonist has lost her face in a car accident and her surgeon father kidnaps other women in order to surgically remove their faces and place them onto her. Now, the fun part about that discussion is that in many respects, yeah, I know, it's totally, but the fun part of that horror story, because it's meant as a horror story, eventually she rises up and kills him and sort of walks off into kind of nothingness, um, is that it does play both a series of questions around gender and around the proper place of women in society, very elaborately, at times in highly conservative terms, Mm -hmm. you know, if as a woman you're too forward, you're going to get kidnapped and your face removed is one side of the argument. And the other side is true female fury emerges in response to that scenario. So there was a whole network of possibilities and citations that came into this discussion of the face, where over and over and over the idea of what does it mean for there for me to have a face that I present in public came came in. Mm-hmm. And I very much wanted that sense that this is not, if we want something optical, so to speak, yes. the most visible, the most readily visible scenario is routinely and systematically undercut and reconstructed, presented as though it were no longer authentic mm-hmm. uh, in the post-war period. And that I find utterly fascinating and in a manner that obviously is not just French, but where that set of problems and plays came in with, with a series of particular implications that were to be um, that were to be negotiated in their own in, in, in their own ways. That that became very much of an exciting subject for me to play with. Because in a way this is also a way to 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 for us to make these problems not be simply philosophical or scientific or social historical problems, but problems that where, where we can see them be felt, where these abstract mm-hmm. concepts or en passant concepts, phantom concepts, mm-hmm. um, to pull phantom Africa to phantom concepts, mm-hmm. these phantom concepts suddenly become things that can, where we can understand the physicality of their implications and of their feeling that is associated mm-hmm. with them. No, that's, I mean, that's a fantastic, fantastic answer. I'm very conscious that we're about to run out of time. Um, I have many, <laughs> many more questions to ask you, but I'm going to stick to one, if that's okay. Um, sure. And this kind of brings it into the present, right, which you mm. also do in your, your subtitle, um, which is uh, A Critical History of the Present. Um, and so I think, you, I think you had this in mind all the way along with your methodological positioning. Um, but... You know, there's a significant difference between our prevailing understandings of transparency and and those that you map out in this book. And in part, I think this comes down to what you're arguing, which is the particularity of this post-war French moment. Um, but I think there's also, it says something else about our own time. Um, the pendulum has well and truly swung towards a, a platform, particularly in the United States, mm. um, that proclaims the virtues of a transparent government um, and which treats claims of privacy in the public sphere very suspiciously. 
Um, and this is, I think this is particularly fraught at the moment with questions around, you know, fake news um, and the, the recent scandal or anxieties around data collection use, like the uh, Cambridge Analytica yes. um, thing that's occupying so much news time at the moment. Um, so do you, how do you think that uh, some of the various meanings and uses of transparency that you explore in your book um, can be sort of useful to help in, in terms of understanding our present moment? Or do you, I mean, do you yes. think they're useful? Yes, oh, very much so. I, so there are, let's say that the, the history of the present, the way that I imagined it in this project, were, I meant it in the sense used by Joan Scott and Ruth Lees. Mm -hmm. That is to say, you develop an understanding of a history that forms a counterpoint to the present uh, moment so that you can see how that history both could have gone very differently, but also forms exactly this critical perspective. When I started writing this book, Obama had just become president and he very actively advocated for transparent government as an ideal. And I was very conscious that that is, you know, it's a really nice slogan, um, but it doesn't actually mean very much. And in the last couple of years, we've had a very peculiar swing because of Donald Trump. On the one hand, there's an appeal toward transparency, particularly among critics of Trump, but where transparency is invoked as though it can do very much. Um, on the other hand, you could respond in, in, in this case, this isn't simply a matter of transparency. It's a matter of deep corruption. It's a matter of um, a, a, a systematic flaunting and, and, and play at the cost of institutions, as opposed to what was meant by transparency, namely that all the books are out. Mm -hmm. So we can complain about is, you know, who even remembers uh, Donald Trump's tax returns? He managed to dodge that part altogether. At the same time, I wanted to emphasize that transparency has become a dead ideal or a kind of um, false one, actually, in this case, because exposure is something to which we all don't simply submit. It's something that we all give into uh, with, with great glee. That is to say, from Facebook through Twitter to everything else, we operate as though a certain flaunting of ourselves, whatever that self may be, and I'm entirely participating in that, is not contradictory vis-a-vis a certain demand that we be treated as private. Now, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, for example, I'm utterly astonished that this is a surprise to anybody. Um, it's 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 the the big surprise, perhaps, is that there was one agent <laughs> doing that, rather than that this was being done all over the place, which sounds like it was what even Facebook was assuming, um, and that in this case it seems so nefarious because of a particular uh, set of agents, but namely the Cambridge Analytica people, but that's a different story. In a way, what I'm trying to suggest is that we have gladly granted forms of transparency vis-a-vis -vis our own lives, where we know that we can be examined, questioned, where things about us can be known without anybody having to make very much effort. And at the same time, we continue with a highly antiquated demand that government operate as transparent when we know perfectly well that, of course, it hasn't done so in the past, and that a sense of possibility, efficacy, and, you know, even, even just a purpose in government might require a measure of distance from that 
constant having to say all the time what it is that you're that you're doing. That we've entered a new cycle where because we wish to be transparent and because we wish for a government to be transparent, we don't so often ask what has it actually done and in what way has this gone forward. The two have become contrasts. Trump, too, advocates more intelligently, perhaps, a version of transparency, which is precisely the one that we're not entirely comfortable about. That is to say, the sort of stream of consciousness attitude that he sets up on Twitter, he gets a sense of what is possible for him, quite how much support relative to other things he can have in terms of particular actions. That sense of flaunting helped propel him to the presidency because it gave the sense that he was transparent. By comparison to these, I think that the different angles in the book can play a role. The interpersonal transparency angle, this question of where is it that you end and I begin, uh, in a conversation as much as in intimate relations and as much as in other things, those are negotiations that we're having on an everyday basis. The epistemological questions, similarly, are questions that have very much to do with data science, with information, with the way that we give up or receive uh, forms of information that we don't necessarily think about far too much uh, in advance. And the question of what would be not an opaque situation, but one that adopts and understands and pursues this complexity is one that I'm very curious about. And at the political level, this negotiation is an important one. It's not one that's operating in very clear terms right now. But now is a moment to say that what was already a kind of false ideal when Obama came to power and rather than speak further of change, spoke in his first memo of governmental transparency. If that were the moment then, we had the Trump moment to follow. And now transparency is being used in a highly glib uh, political fashion, not only in as a kind of counter hope to Trump, which is not particularly efficient, but even by say Paul Ryan on the floor of the Senate of the of the House a couple of weeks ago, where Ryan after the Republicans released their FBI memo, um, Ryan came up and praised how this had been all done in, in the name of transparency and so on. Now, these words have been there, and we're going to have new ones um, to, to negotiate with. You know, the entire discussion around human rights, for example, is played on similar issues. But they're, I think, deserving of far more historical attention and 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 you know, political care in order to operate as responses to the present moment. It's not just good enough for us to say the history of something we think now is a history that has problems. That's obvious. But what is a counter history to what we have now? And how do we engage that counter history if we're going to imagine the limits of the present and the ways we're going to go somewhere else? Thank you. I mean, I'm also struck dramatic. by it. No, I mean, I, I agree. And I also, I'm very struck too by the, the connection to that sort of sense of social transparency. I mean, mm -hmm. as you were speaking about Facebook and the idea of the way in which we make ourselves transparent, I was struck, um, I was thinking again of de Beauvoir's sort of question, right? You know, we yes. have a sense, I think we take for granted that, you know, in a social setting, we put on a certain mask. And I mean, to what extent is social media anything more than another extension of that mask? Yes. The sense of avatars that replace. Mm -hmm. They're very interesting, but they're not necessarily being asked in terms of, you know, how would we think of this moment 20 years from now? Not that this is a legitimate question a priori, but how would we think of a moment in which this multiplication of avatars comes to define us? But also in a democratic sense, to what degree can we appeal to privacy and a traditional understanding of democracy when each individual 
doesn't simply have the limits of their body in, you know, space and social settings, um, you know, in a very materialist sense, that, that is a very real question, but suddenly has all of these virtual replicas, uh, which in many respects, as we know, condition our psychological well-being very much of the time. And where these psychological replicas start to take over from, you know, certain moments or spaces in the local. I don't think that I'm saying something very, you know, in, you know, very, very remarkable in, in this by any means. My, my concern is rather that this technological engagement will sooner or later appear to be something where I think that our, our appeal to transparency to begin with will have been, a, you know, one of the greatest illusions of the present time, that this is one scenario where we keep what we have and we object to others, um, you know, whether these others be Trump or, or, or those who belong outside, but where we have already given far more uh, than what a classical political subject would have had and where it's no longer clear to what degree we have contributed to the complete undoing of a certain democratic scenario uh, thanks to this commitment to exposure and self and 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 you know non-participation at the same time, the sort of pretense that we're participating by being online, things like that will I think start to look very different. I don't think this is a very cogent response for a last one, but at least it's a less dramatic one. Um, <laughs> I think so, and I think I think it gives our listeners um, a lot of food for thought. So um, I'd like to finish by thanking you very much for that. It's... No, but thank you so much, Sarah. This is a fantastic occasion to sit and get a chance to talk. And I hope that you, um, I, I, I hope we've had a chance to give a little bit of a sense of your work as well uh, to our listeners so that they, in the terms of the exchange and engagement here are clear. Um, and at the same time, hooray for the JHI podcast. Thank you so <laughs> Absolutely, much. Absolutely, definitely. And listeners should definitely read Steph's new book. <laughs> thank, thank you, you. so much. <laughs>